The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to part two of tonight's interview and all of our material going back to 2008, don't miss out and subscribe. It's very simple. All you have to do is click on the subscribe button of our website at veritasradio.com and you'll receive your login immediately. And have you listened to Sanitas Radio yet? Take a look at all the shows we've done so far and all the upcoming guests. You have no idea what these shows can do for you and your loved ones. You will never hear what they have to say in the mainstream media. I guarantee it. Remember, your greatest wealth is your health. Check it out at sanitasradio.com. And for MMS or our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, go to the Veritas store. To get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, suggestions, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And tonight we discuss the mystery of cattle mutilations with our special guest, Christopher O'Brien, right now on Veritas. From 1992 to 2002, Christopher O'Brien investigated over 1,000 paranormal events reported in the San Luis Valley, located in the south-central Colorado and north-central New Mexico. Working with law enforcement officials, ex-military, ranchers, and an extensive network of sky watchers, he documented what may have been the most intense wave of unexplained activity ever seen in a single region of North America. His 10-year investigation resulted in three books of his Mysterious Valley trilogy, The Mysterious Valley, Enter the Valley, and Secret of the Mysterious Valley, his meticulous field investigation of UFO reports, unexplained livestock deaths, Native American legends, cryptozoology, secret military activity, and the folklore found in the world's largest alpine valley has produced one of the largest databases of unusual occurrences gathered from a single geographic region. His latest book is titled Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery, and we'll discuss it tonight. And if you want to learn more about Christopher Bryant, visit his website at ourstrangeplanet.com and stalkingtheherd.com. They're both linked at ours as well. And directly from Sedona, Arizona, north of where I am, I would like to welcome, for the first time on Veritas, our special guest, Christopher O'Brien. Hello, Chris, and welcome. Hey, Mel, thank you, uh, and thanks for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. You know, for a long time, I wanted to do a show on cattle mutilation. This is one of those topics that uh, comes and goes. All of a sudden, you don't hear that much about it, but then all of a sudden, it starts all over again. When and what you, when and what got you started uh, in this phenomenon? Well, you know, I, I first heard about it uh, when I was like a 10-year-old kid in Bellevue, Washington, when I saw the headline on like the Weekly World News or one of those supermarket rags uh, at the checkout counter at the local Safeway, and uh, it was this horribly disfigured horse uh, missing all the tissue from its shoulders all the way to the tip of its nose, and the lurid headline was, Flying Saucers Killed My Horse, and this was October 67, about a month or so after the uh, Snippy the Horse uh, case. Uh, it, it took about a month for it to really hit the newspapers, and it became an international news story. And 
I, I remember I bugged my mom to for the dime or however much it cost to buy the paper, and I just devoured the article. So, you know, from that first publicized case, I've I've kind of had a, a an interest in you know why these animals uh, are being f- found in a strangely mutilated and and disfigured condition. And of course, uh, during the seventies, I was in New York City and. I was aware of the news stories that were cropping up um, about the waves of, of unexplained livestock deaths in, in the Midwest and West uh, United States. And, you know, had a kind of a peripheral uh, interest. If I ever saw an article, I'd, you know, I'd read it. But it wasn't until I moved to Colorado in 1989 that, um, that I really became directly involved. Uh, in 1992, actually, uh, there was a case uh, about 60 miles south of me in Costilla County. And um, that same night, uh, the little town that I lived in had a real spectacular UFO sighting. And, and I, I just felt the synchronicity and the coincidence was too compelling to pass up. And I was writing for my little town newspaper. And so I I started uh, a two-week process of, of researching the San Luis Valley's activity. And Within two weeks, I had doubled the official number of cases uh, that had been reported, including uh, a couple of dozen cases in my county, which had never made any sort of uh, databases or uh, didn't have any any sort of media attention. And, you know, it's it's strange. After that first article came out, I did a follow up article the following month and and I was on national TV. Uh, Go figure. It just this thing kind of grew a life of its own. And (laughs) and. uh I've been, you know, kind of in the trenches uh, ever since. I spent a solid 10 years uh, there in Colorado looking into uh, uh, pretty extensive waves of of mutilation cases, uh, upwards of of 200. And uh, I work closely with uh, law enforcement and the ranching community, uh, brand and livestock inspectors, and and a team of investigators who had been, you know, really involved in, in researching and investigating these things since the 70s. And I was very fortunate to to meet, um, to be trained by Linda Howe over the phone on proper investigative techniques and interviewing uh, tips. And Tom Adams, who probably could be considered the grandfather of mutology, if there, if I can coin a mutology, term. Mutology, I like that. Yeah. And uh, David Perkins, of course, my mentor, who I've had a very uh, close and, uh, and, and really challenging relationship with. He's an incredibly uh, gifted writer, um, has a master's in political science at Yale University, a brilliant, brilliant man. And he's kind of been my mentor for the last 20 plus years in, um, you know, trying to get to the bottom of, you know, how long ago these cases started, first of all, and, and how each of the various theories that have been proposed over the years, how they actually uh, came into being how these uh, memes, as uh, we like to refer to them, uh, you know, grabbed hold in the culture and, and uh, you know, really attempting to unravel, which is, uh, I think, one of the most compelling uh, mysteries of our time. Uh, it could possibly be the greatest unsolved serial crime spree of all time. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been wanting to write a book on this for many years, and I just knew it was going to be a monumental task. And, <laughs> I put it off and put it off, and finally, I just, uh, you know, I just, I just had to get the book out. And, uh, you know, if I had included everything that I had, had written, it would have been almost a thousand pages. And I've decided to pull pull a lot of uh, other people's analysis and, and interviews and opinions, and use that as the basis to build around for a second follow up book, which will analyze um, Stalking the Herd. You know, the first book that just came out. You know. I remember back in, by the way, October 67, that's when I was born, but uh, 1974, I remember our parents, I, I grew up in Puerto Rico and we had been invited to this farm to, you know, horseback riding uh, on the weekend. So weekend came along and all of a sudden I'm told by my parents, well, we're not going after all. And I, you know, I got disappointed. All of a sudden I look on the, the, the table in our house and in the dining table and there's the newspaper there. I guess my, my dad forgot to leave it there. All of a sudden, I see this this cow completely you know, obliterated, uh, mutilated. And I read the headlines. And all of a sudden, next to the police was the 
the rancher who invited us to to their farm. And I asked my dad, you know, wow. is, is this why we're not going to the farm? And they, my mom and my dad looked at each other like, you know, we, we, we can't tell the kids that this is why we're not going. But that was the reason. So ever since then, 1974, to me, I discovered what cattle mutilation was. I also discovered what the whole UFO phenomenon was. In the 1970s, why are those early 70s years so important to, to this topic and ufology in general? Well, you know, that's, it's a, that's a rather difficult uh, question, but I think, you know, it's, it's very involved. Um, I, I think there were a lot of factors um, that uh, contributed to uh, the waves of, of cases that were reported as many as um, six states in a single night were reporting cases. Um, I, th- I really have a sense that, um, you know, and, and I think a lot of other investigators will disagree with this, but but I have a sense that the 70s were really crucial because, first of all, that, that was the height of uh, meat consumption in the United States. And it was also the, the height of numbers of cattle in the United States. And uh, if you look at, a, you know, at the, at the figures of ranching operations that were in existence, um, let's say in 75, the height of the mutilation waves, and you look at the the number of ranches that exist now, eighty percent of the small ranches um, that were, you know, in operation uh, in nineteen seventy five, eighty percent of them are now gone, and in their stead we have these huge feedlot operations um, that process up to four hundred uh, cattle an hour, and these feedlot operations, uh, curiously enough, are right. You know, many of them are right where we see, um, you know, these waves of uh, mutilation activity that occurred prior to, uh, you know, the real super industrialization of the of the <laughs> industrialized protein operations, uh, for lack of a better term. So I think that has something to do with it. I also um, think that uh, it, it became a really major news story. It was the Associated uh, Press Story of the Year in Colorado. Uh, a lot of people were aware of uh, these these reports, um, the media got involved. Um, there was all sorts of sensationalism, uh, and I've found over the years that as soon as the media gets involved and starts promoting uh, the mystery, if you will, uh, it has a tendency to pull, you know, cases that aren't really high strange it, that are just unusual appearing scavenger action, for instance. Um, you know, people are hearing that uh, cattle mutilations are going on and they see a dead cow and they think, oh my God, here's one. So you have a lot of, of, of misidentified cases that are then lumped into it and, it, and it makes it appear like <laughs> there's many, many more cases than there actually are. That's not to say that we haven't had upwards of 10,000 know, real cases, which is the number I think David Perkins, Tom Adams, and myself uh, kind of agreed on uh, that 75, 74, 75 through 79 time period. So it's a complicated question. I, I think there's a lot of nuances uh, involved. Um, you also have uh, the mystery helicopter uh, right. aspect, uh, which I think is very important. Um, some investigators out there like to uh, sort of go into denial about this, but there have been hundreds and hundreds of reports of helicopters in and around mutilation sites um, all the way you know, up uh, to the present day. And another thing I, I, I find um, fairly intriguing as well uh, is, you know, we have the end of the Vietnam War occurring and then we have a lot of returning helicopter pilots and we also have uh, returning pilots from Vietnam. Uh, A lot of these cases uh, tend to be clustered around military bases. uh, And, uh, you know, I think that there's the possibility that there's some sort of environmental monitoring program that was underway in the 70s that had to do with where we utilize and mine uranium for instance, uh, nuclear power plants, missile silos, uh, weapons enrichment facilities, uranium mines. If you go downstream and downwind of these areas and downwind of the Nevada test site, uh, you'll find these are the highest uh, areas of of incidence uh, in the mutilation phenomenon as it was reported. And so I think that there's you have a quincunx of things coming together as a constellation of, of, of possible agendas. I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to this. I, I think there's multiple groups involved piggybacking their agendas, uh, piggybacking their agendas on other agendas. And it it gets very, very complicated. It's a Gordian knot that I, <laughs> I've been attempting for 20 years to, to unravel. And I think I've made some, some good headway. I, I really feel with the help of David Perkins and 
uh, about a dozen databases that were stovepiped around uh, in investigators' files. Um, I pulled all these databases together and really selected, I think, the key cases that that give us a real sense of, you know, possible Satanist or occult angle, possible environmental angle, possible ET angle, um, you know, societal uh, manipulation by large ranchers uh, trying to scare away smaller ranchers, uh, for instance. There's there's some good evidence to support uh, that kind of piggybacked agenda onto the the whole mystery. And it, it's very, very involved in it. It gets it gets complicated when you when you really start looking into it. it it's just not an easy slam dunk one answer. Uh, ETs coming down to gather genetic material is the pop culture kind of view on this. And I I really felt that uh, someone needed to come forward, do a case history, look at this, and also put this mystery into cultural context. And that's what I've, I, I think I've done uh, with Stalking the Herd. And I think what you've done is, as you said, you present the cases so that people can come to their own conclusion because you've investigated, what, about 200 cases? Correct. So how close are you to figuring the mystery out? Well, you know, again, I think there's aspects of it that are closer to being solved than other aspects. Uh, the high strange cases I don't think will ever be solved. We've had cases of unborn fetuses being uh, mutilated, cases where organs are missing from the body with no break into the into the hide or into the into the body. Um, it, there are high strange cases that I think have always been occurring uh, all through history and may somehow even tie in with the ancient practice of animal sacrifice. Um, you know, I really attempted to look at this as all-encompassing as possible, and I started, you know, the book really starts back with the first uh, attempts to domesticate uh, wild aurochs, which were the sort of the precursor to the modern uh, beef cow and dairy cow. Uh, one surprising thing that I found out uh, early on in my research was a was just a study, a DNA study had just been published in France. And what the scientists, geneticists uh, did was they they were able to uh, isolate the the genetic history of cattle down to a single herd of 80 animals in northern Iran, which just staggered me. Uh, you know, we're talking 940 plus different breeds of cows. We're, we're of cattle. We're talking uh, 1.37 billion head of livestock on the planet, and it's it's just inconceivable to me that. They, <laughs> that all these animals could have all come from a single herd in northern Iran in 10,500 10, BC. It's just mind-blowing to me. And so I, I started there, and then I, I, I looked at how our relationship with cattle evolved uh, in terms of them being very, very sacred. Uh, some of your earliest uh, urban centers, for instance, uh, uh, at Katahuyuk and uh, around Gobleki Tepe in these areas uh, that have been getting some notoriety in, in the news these last few years. These were the areas where the first domestication of grain occurred, the first domestication of, of livestock. Um, and I, I think it's pretty interesting. It's probably, uh, you know, you, you're looking at an aurochs here where it's eight feet, 10 feet at the shoulder, a wild animal, just a huge, powerful animal. Uh, and it would probably take uh, the invention of wine making and beer making to uh, <laughs> to get the uh, uh, courage, I guess, to uh, tackle some of these animals and try to contain them. So, you know, I can just imagine these uh, Iranians sitting around drinking beer going, oh, that aurochs doesn't look that big. Do you think we can grab that baby? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, I've had some fun with this as well. Uh, in terms of looking at the the evolution of our belief systems around cattle. And one interesting thing that I think I've kind of isolated is how the male or the bull cults uh, kind of, the bull sort of went to the West and the cow went to the East. The female aspect went to the East into India. Uh, and you have the Western uh, bull cults, uh, the Minoans, the Zoroastrians, uh, you know, you can go down the line of the Mithra cults in the, around the first century uh, AD. And it, it's really fascinating to me to see how our sacred relationship with cattle has slowly devolved over the years into this very unceremonious uh, industrialized slaughtering. Uh, like I said before, they can be up to 400 animals an hour. 
I mean, you, your average fast food hamburger could have upwards of a thousand different animals in that one burger. And I think there's some serious, serious health issues that uh, I also uh, go into in the book. So this is a very complicated uh, relationship that we have with cattle. And, and I think that there is a possibility that collectively we may be manifesting some of these cases on a, on a collective unconscious level. It's almost, uh, it almost appears at times to be a cultural stigmata that's going on because we know how detrimental collectively, we all know how detrimental cattle are to the environment when they're slammed into these feedlot scenarios. 80% of antibiotics uh, used in this country go into to cattle. Uh, a high percentage, 40 or 50%, I think of growth hormones go into, into, uh, into cattle. And we can't continue, I think, uh, going down this particular slippery slope uh, with the whole process of providing industrialized beef protein uh, to the masses. And as more third world countries uh, become uh, able to afford to eat beef, that's going to create even more rainforest being torn down uh, and burnt for uh, creating more grazing land, for instance. Uh, you're going to see more uh, desertification happening. Cattle are the chiefest, chief cause of, of the creation of deserts. They're the largest single uh, polluter of, of fresh water besides humans. Um, they are one of the top uh, producers of ozone-depleting gas. Cows belch or pass gas about once every two minutes. And when you have over a billion of these animals belching and farting skyward all this uh, methane, um, you know, it, it it's it's just a very complicated scenario, and it's it, it probably won't continue uh, to, for too much longer. Yeah, that's very interesting because you know you think of Shiva in India and and you know how sacred cows are, and I never thought about this. Just imagine if that were in the case. If all of a sudden India said, you know what, we're going to start eating beef now. Imagine what that could do to the environment as well. Oh but, yeah, India is the largest exporter of beef. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. Yeah, it's mostly buffalo, but it tastes okay. I mean, it's virtually identical. Um, yeah, it's it. The whole cultural angle on this has never been addressed by mutilation researchers. They're just looking at the crime scene evidence and scratching their heads. They're not looking at this pit, big picture. This whole, you know, putting this thing in, into cultural and subcultural context, and and, and that's I think. Uh, it's kind of having blinders on because there's there's more going on here than just uh, you know ranchers being targeted and cattle being uh, slain and disfigured. There, there's a much bigger picture here, and um, and I really felt it uh, important to point out some of these um, kind of blind spots that we have in the West here uh, as it relates to to cattle and livestock and its role in in health and uh, and nutrition and. And, and these are areas that I think deserve a lot more attention. And I think the public needs to be aware and educated about how detrimental uh, our, our, you know, agro, big, big agro practices are. And uh, it, it's just not, it, it can't continue. I mean, we, we cannot sustain um, this. <laughs> I mean, just look at McDonald's. They purchase, what is it? One billion, not million, one billion, billion yeah, a pounds year of beef. beef. Then you add to that. They grow with hormone, and then you wonder why, you know, little girls, eight, nine years old, right, all of a sudden they, they exactly, yeah, yeah, and it, it's oh man, it's uh, once you start really looking under that particular rock, and uh, you start you know kind of looking at uh, big agriculture and the power of the beef lobby in this country, a lobby that you never ever hear about, unless you're Oprah. You know, right. saying I'll never eat another hamburger again and being sued for $2 billion. Um, you never, ever hear about the beef lobby. The Sherman Antitrust Act, which was the first attempt by the U.S. government to break up uh, trusts uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, most people think that it was done to break up Standard Oil or it was done to break up uh, the railroads. No, it was it was actually done to break up the beef trusts that were running roughshod over uh, the production uh, and transportation and, and the rendering and packaging and processing of, of livestock. And uh, it took years and years for them to finally finally uh, pass the legislation, which was watered down. It was only because of the the book, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which a lot of us had to read, uh, you know, in, in school, 
and and the the expose of the horrendous conditions in slaughterhouses uh, in the Union stockyards in Chicago and and and, and elsewhere, it, it just horrified people. And we need another book like The Jungle to wake people up about this. I I love beef, but I I don't allow myself to eat it very often. And when I do eat it, it's gr- it's not grain fed; it's grass fed and it's free range. And it comes from my local area here in northern Arizona. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I I don't trust processed meat anymore. And I don't think anybody out there really should. It, it's you know, this is a real major health issue that is totally being kept in the closet. Absolutely, and I'm glad you mentioned that because many people say, "Oh, grain that must be good for you." But it's really not. No. So even at the age of seven, Chris, I remember newspapers discussing extraction of blood and the laser precision cuts being made. Is this a common denominator between the cases, laser precision cuts? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, that's a real misnomer. It's part of the pop culture sort of misinformation that's been uh, promoted for years. Uh, no, most of these animals are disfigured with a sharp implement like a scalpel or a very sharp knife. Uh, I don't find cases being drained of blood out of those 200 cases. Only a handful actually uh, were drained of, of blood, for instance. Now, that just might be my luck of the draw with my cases. But I don't know how many times I had a rancher say, you got to come out. This animal's been drained of blood. Me and my brother just kind of muscle the thing over and t- flip it over and all the all the goodies that come flowing out, uh, you know, when an animal dies, all the fluids, you know, descend, uh, gravity, you know, pushes it down into the lower body cavity out of sight. And to the untrained eye, it looks like the animal's been drained of blood. But uh, if you cut up a cow after it's dead, it's not going to bleed, for instance. And uh, all those uh, blood and fluids will descend to the body cavity. And then, you know, a lot of the moisture, the the water will, will evaporate and, and leave behind uh you know, the, the 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 thicker material, shall we say. I don't want to gross your audience out here too much. But but I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. Uh, I only had four cases that conclusively showed cooked hemoglobin, for instance, which is one thing that you can look for as a, a veterinary pathologist for, um, you know, the possible use of high heat. Uh, I find these cases are extremely uh, the exception rather than the norm. And um also, you know, this whole idea of, of um, you know, gathering genetic material uh, by aliens, for instance, which is a real popular theory out there and has been for years. You know, my, my stock answer when somebody mentions that is I said, well, why don't they just pick the lock on a rendering plant and go in and get as much as they want, and you know, out of sight, out of mind. Nobody will ever miss it, you know. It's it just some of these theories that have popped up, there's – so much information, you know, I could take the opposite side of that debate. Uh, it doesn't matter what theory, if it's cultists, uh, whether it's uh, aliens, whether it's uh, monitoring the environment, um, whether it's political intimidation. I can take any of those theories and argue the opposite side and win. So there's more than enough information to negate every theory, yet they all seem to dovetail and sort of, uh, you know, layer themselves upon one another. So it's, it's like I said, it's a Gordian knot and I'm, it's really difficult to unravel a lot of this, but I think we need to educate people and, and at least show them that, uh, a lot of the popular conceptions about this are mis misperceptions and, and, and people need to, uh, to be educated about it. You know, I don't mean to offend some people, but I see a lot of gullibility out there in the UFO community. And, you know, the more you inspect and, and, and research this, and you talk to people like Chris, who have been doing this for many, many years, do you ever get somebody saying, oh, Chris, you're just debunking? Do you ever get that? No, not at all, because uh, this is a real mystery. I, I, I debunk the misperceptions and the misconceptions about this. Um, I, I try to correct people. Uh, I, I think correct them is is a kinder word than debunk. Uh, I do feel that a lot of cases are m- media-induced uh, misidentification of, of unusual appearance scavenger action, for instance. Uh, I'm not a veterinary pathologist. Nobody who investigates these cases, uh, to my knowledge, uh, with just a few exceptions, are veterinary pathologists. Um, I have gathered together some really interesting science uh, that has been done and, and results of, of necropsies and 
and uh, veterinary pathology examinations, uh, which I present in the book, which do show without any shadow of a doubt that at least some of these cases are truly high strange. So I will never be the one to go out there and say, there's nothing here, uh, move along, folks. There is something here, but I don't think it's as pervasive and as sensational as uh, certain investigators uh, have been promoting. So have you interviewed any pathologists? And if so, what have they said? Well, I, I think the National Institute for Discovery Sciences, NIDS, uh, Robert Bigelow's uh, now defunct organization that was uh, uh, real busy in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, they did some very good uh, scientific work. And uh, Dr. George Onet, I think, is a person that uh, deserves a lot of credit for uh, and, and for his courage to get involved in this uh, publicly and uh, and actually do uh, good science. Uh, the work of Colm Kelleher, uh, also from NIDS, uh, is is to be commended. His book, Brain Trust, for instance, is, uh, I think, a really overlooked, important uh, work that looks at the possible correlation of the mutilation phenomenon and the potential monitoring for uh, prion disease or mad cow disease. Uh, this is a huge uh, subject that not many people are aware of. Uh, this potential, potential connection uh, is very alarming uh, on one hand, and I, I think the public has a need to know uh, about this particular aspect of the work. And, and if I had to put my chips on a particular theory that has the most uh, you know, suggestive data to support it, I would say that the monitoring of the potential spread of mad cow disease and the monitoring of environmental pollutants uh, stands the test of time and, and, and is the theory that I think um, has the most amount of evidence to support it. That definitely rings a bell with me because we have these, you know, items near mutilation sites. Well, what is it? Gas masks, parts of uh, powerful lasers, apparent radar chaff, and, and other man-made artifacts. What's the correlation here then? Well, I mean, again, those cases are really rare. Um, there's only a handful of cases that have had that kind of crime scene evidence. Uh, I think a lot has been made out of uh, the Gomez Ranch case, for instance, that uh, State Patrolman Gabe Valdez was involved in investigating for many years, uh, Manuel and, and Eduardo Gomez's ranch there near Dulce. They did find uh, some pretty interesting uh, crime scene evidence there. Uh you know, radar chafe, fly, as you mentioned, a gas mask. But this is a standalone case. Uh, these types of discoveries are extremely rare. When you look at the totality of this mystery, uh, you know, a, a scalpel was found at one site, um, I think a uh, near a mutilation site, not with it, where the animal was, but near the uh, rancher's house. A satchel was found with some cow parts in it uh, that appeared to be a military issue uh, satchel. Um Again, these cases, like I said, are, you know, they're for every unexplained case, uh, you know, for every, let's say, 100 or 1,000 unexplained cases, you'll only have one case that'll have that kind of tantalizing evidence. And so you really need to kind of temper uh, temper your thinking a little bit when it comes to uh, to that. As most of your listeners, I would assume, know, it's the soft tissue organs that are found missing from these animals. Uh, the same organs that that scavengers uh, tend to attack first to get into the body cavity, and uh, these are the fastest regenerating tissues in the body. So, if you're going to be monitoring the environment, this would be a good way to do it. Take the tongue, reproductive organs. Um, you know, the ocular fluid has recent vestiges of environmental conditions. Um, you know, you need to look at this from from several angles. And uh, I think m the vast majority, 99.9 to I don't know how many places of cases, feature no real uh, mistakes uh, by the perpetrators in leaving stuff behind, cigarette butts, tire tracks, that sort of thing. But you also have to factor in how this whole thing really started, uh, the, the major waves in the 70s. And most people aren't aware that there was a huge wave of cattle rustling that featured mystery helicopters in Iowa in, in 1972 and in parts of Nebraska. And uh, there were gun battles between some of these uh, helicopter crews and ranchers trying to protect their herds. You'll never hear this from the ET uh, believers. Uh, 
you know, there have been many cases where animals have been shot, then mutilated, shot with firearms. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Mel, but I have, I've never heard of an alien uh, hurling subsonic pieces of lead around. Um, that, that just doesn't, it doesn't really fit that particular scenario. Um, you know, I had a number of cases in the San Luis Valley in the seventies um, that I researched that uh, the first uh, wave of cases featured rustling and then it featured animals shot with firearms. And you, you find this correlation cropping up uh, when you look at areas that, that have a major wave occur. Oftentimes at the beginning of that wave, you'll find that first you have waves of rustling, then you have waves of animals being shot. Uh, lots of mystery helicopters uh, are being sighted. Occasionally, strange lights will be uh, reported as UFOs. And in some rare cases, in some waves, we've even had hairy hominid reports that seem to presage uh, the outbreak of, of livestock uh, mutilations. So it, it's, it gets really complicated, and it really kind of makes you scratch your head. I mean, I had one uh, person who read the book. They said, man, I, I would, would find myself leaning in this direction, this theory, and then boom, there'd be a case that would make me lean back in this direction. And and then there'd be another case right after that that I – you know, it, it, it just keeps you coming and going and uh, you have to be really grounded and you have to be uh, very careful about, uh, you know, where you put your your beliefs uh, in terms of, of trying to figure this thing out. So you have to be as objective and even keeled as possible. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, watch your beliefs because you can't be closed minded because as, as you said, as you read the book, you think you're standing here on the left, but all of a sudden you have a case that that makes you just go to turn to the right, and then you don't even know at the end what they're all about. And I think, as you said, they're anti, I mean, uh, multifaceted. But yeah. I'm surprised also you went all the way back in time. Are there artistic depictions of, of cattle mutilation in ancient times, perhaps carved or painted in stone? Well, the uh, the famous Tassili frescoes in Africa have a very interesting cave painting that shows what appears to be a mutilation in progress. And one of the figures that is kind of perpetrating the the action around the head of the animal uh, is very strange looking. And uh, there's a really interesting detail that I, I show the entire uh, section of the fresco in, in the book. And then I zero in on this particular detail. Um, this would be about 8,000 years ago, I think, when this particular uh, drawing was done. And uh, we have cases that go all the way back, uh, f fairly well documented, that go back to, to the early 1600s uh, in and around London. In 1606, there was a wave of, of unexplained sheep mutilations uh, during the reign of James I. And there's an interesting uh, uh, kind of a reference to these cases in the uh, the court of James, uh, you know, official court records. And... Uh, it has this very interesting – the way it's worded is is very intriguing because it says uh, at the very end, it describes, you know, the condition of the animals and in, in that on one uh, – in one herd, 100 animals were taken. Uh, in other herds, not so many. But then it says, of, of all these things, uh, sundry conjectures can be made that tendeth toward fireworks, which is a very intriguing way to end up. Wait a second. Firework. Explain yeah, that. Fireworks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's I'm still scratching my head over that one. But uh, so we're talking hundreds of sheep mutilations in and around London in 16, probably late 1605, early 1606. And what was happening there at the time? I always look at what's going on around in the culture at the, mm -hmm. at the time, you know, where these uh, events occur and what's going on in the in the population. You have James I rewriting the Christian Bible. You have Shakespeare writing Macbeth. And. You have the Guy Fox uh, gunpowder plot smashed, and uh, ten days before the court record date, you have Guy Fox jumping off his, uh, you know, the scaffold where they were going to, you know, hang him uh, and then disembowel him, uh, emasculate him, and then cut him into four pieces and send him to the, you know, his body parts to the edges of the realm. You have him jumping off the uh, scaffold and breaking his neck to try to escape the uh, mutilation that was going to happen to him. And I, I just find it very intriguing that that you should have at, at this very crucial point in Western history, uh, you should have a, a wave of, of, of sheep mutilations right around the, the city where all this stuff is taking place. And I, I just I find these cultural correlations endlessly fascinating. You know, I always find that, you know, you turn on TV 
and less than 60 seconds later, there's always news. Everything's fear-based. Hollywood is fear-based. Do you think that this modern myth of, uh, of animal mutilation appeals to our fear-based instincts? Well, I, I, I don't really think <laughs> the thing appeals to anybody, really. Um, I think what it does is it, it tends to um, rub on uh, a very raw wound uh, that we have. I think uh, collectively, uh, subconsciously, I think we all know that uh, the cattle are, are detrimental. I think collectively it's, it's you know, I, I think there is that and I think it is a closet subject. And I think the very idea uh, of the word mutilation is a turnoff to most people. I think I think uh, the, the the exact opposite. I, I think what it does is it, it it clicks people off. It makes them go in further into denial. And uh, the people that are intrigued by it, um, I think what it does is it, it, it doesn't really play upon our fears as much as it really um, it really challenges us, uh, us to, to come up with, with rationale for these things to be taking place. Now, if you're a rancher and you have a herd of cows uh, and one of them gets mutilated, yeah, you're going to be in a place of fear, but you're also going to be uh, ticked off because you just lost, uh, you know, 500, to, you know, sky's the limit, uh, you know, uh, dollar value uh, in, in a, an investment that uh, is not going to pan out. You know, just one breeding cow can produce quite a number of offspring, and if you lose that breeding cow, not only do you lose the animal and in the, in the worth of, of that single animal, you also lose the possibility of, of other of other offspring from that animal. So I think in the ranching community, uh, there is a bit of fear-based uh, uh, thinking and uh, reaction, especially the high strange cases. They're the ones that are least likely to be reported uh, because that really freaks ranchers out. It's only when they think that they're being targeted by the government or by Satanists or or hoaxers or pranksters that they get angry and then they then they'll report it or go to the to the media. If they see helicopters around their herd and they find uh, animals dead, they that tends to really get their hackles up and they they tend to get pretty uh, upset about that and and they're more apt to report it. See, that's another part. If if the if for some reason I'm connecting crop circles here for a moment, you know the the the, the government says that's that's probably man made. All of a sudden, you see these helicopters always flying by. Same thing with cattle mutilation. If it's a predator or if it's a hoaxer who's doing it, why do we see these these mystery choppers flying around? That's a good question. Uh, Linda Howitz would tell you that uh, it's UFOs that are cloaking themselves and masquerading as helicopters. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've all asked her several times, well, Linda, what about all these hundreds and hundreds of, of mystery helicopter sightings? Oh, those are UFOs. They're, they're pretending to be helicopters. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm more of an Occam's razor kind of guy. Yes, you know, yes. Usually the simplest ex explanation, you know, uh, by and large, usually makes the most sense and, and tends to be the answer. And, you know, I just can't quite uh, wrap my head around uh, that. You know, I've had a number of cases where deputies and, and even in one case, a sheriff actually almost brought one of these helicopters down. Uh, you know, they, they, they start, you know, firing away at it and it starts smoking uh, and limps back to wherever it came from. Uh, in this case, they thought it came from Fort Carson on the front range of Colorado, but they didn't really know. But uh, I, I have yet to hear of somebody being able to shoot, you know, uh, a mirage uh, or a cloaked UFO and cause it to smoke and make weird uh, noises. <laughs> well, you see, this is usually, and it's not all all the same when we see all these areas of, with cattle mutilation. A lot of these areas are in, in very close proximity to a military base. Have you yeah. found that to be true? Yeah, yeah, they are. In fact, uh, during the mid-70s, not only the near military bases, but I think upwards of 80 animals were discovered mutilated within some of our most strategic uh, ICBM missile fields around Malmstrom Air Force Base and parts of uh, extreme western Nebraska and, and extreme northern Colorado. There's a huge, uh, there was a huge missile field there of hundreds of ICBMs. And in and amongst these uh, silos, they, they were finding mutilated cattle because they allow cattle to, to graze all around the area there. And, of course, you had UFO reports. I think uh, Robert Hastings' book, UFOs and Nukes, is a very, very important book that anyone interested in the subject of UFOs should be familiar with. 
But, uh, you know, you start looking at some of the cases in Cascade County in Montana and you see the Bigfoot reports, you see the weird occult type uh, figures that are seen lurking about in strange UFO sightings and misdirection by uh, people claiming to be Air Force officers uh, when, you know, they're trying to chase down some of these helicopters, for instance, with small planes, uh, which happened on a number of occasions. Uh, you know, it, it, it it's a real whodunit and it uh, – <laughs> It's like I said, you know, it's a Gordian knot and you just got to patiently start peeling back the uh, the strands and unraveling it. In some areas, and I think I wrote this down here, uh, there are some military bases that are dealing with uh, biological and chemical weapons. Do you think that uh, I'm trying to look for the one where it might be that it was a, uh, a leak of a chemical agent do you think this might be done on purpose was it an accident or i just want to know the correlation between this chemical agents and the possibility that they were used against these the the livestock in order to test the effectiveness and the efficiency of, of the weapon yeah that's that's a good point um in 1968 uh, the dugway proving grounds uh, had a malfunctioning a nozzle on one of their uh, airplanes that was uh, spraying uh, i think vx nerve gas and, and they were doing experiments with it and the 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 valve stayed open and the gas drifted over, I think, an aptly named uh, location outside of the uh, proving grounds there called Skull Valley. And thousands of uh, hundreds, rather, of, of sheep were uh, were killed. Uh, it, I think if you start really digging into, let's say, uh, prion disease and how it has been handled uh, from the 50s in, into the 60s, Uh, Nobel Prize was awarded Daniel Gujak, who was uh, the one that was uh, responsible for bringing uh, diseased brains from Papua New Guinea tribes people uh, afflicted with Kuru, which is a form of prion disease. He brought it back to some biological labs, and there is evidence to suggest that uh, there was some nefarious testing going on and possibly the attempt to weaponize uh, this scourge, which is 100% fatal. And it may have escaped. Uh, one of the uh, facilities in Wyoming and possibly another one in in, uh, in Colorado, uh, this uh, you know scourge may have escaped and, and, and then landed into the deer and elk herds. And that's possibly why we have this uh, you know this ongoing uh, wave of chronic wasting disease that is slowly spread all the way from you know the west the eastern slopes of of, of the Rockies uh, all the way to to the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, there's 18, 20 states now that, that uh, you know, have diseased deer that, uh, you know, have this prion disease. And that that's a whole subject in and of itself that I think is a very fruitful avenue for uh, investigators to go down. Uh, Colm Kelleher, doc, Dr. Kelleher, did a great job in his book, Brain Trust, uh, looking at this particular scenario and spelling out some pretty alarming uh, facts uh, You know, I can't recommend that book enough. I think he did a, a, just a, an incredible job of of showing the possible links between the, the monitoring of uh, prion disease in the environment and the unexplained livestock death phenomenon. You were mentioning, I think, the case in Salt Lake, or close to Salt Lake City, 1968, where, what is it, 6,300 sheep perished yeah, yeah. in agony from what seemed to have been caused by nerve gas. But first, the Pentagon denied their involvement. But because of the of the news coverage and the outcry, they finally admitted the, their involvement. The military ended up paying paying out $1 million to the impacted sheep ranchers. Right. Why do you think they felt the pressure to do it? Why did they admit it? Well, you know, it's the government, you know, is it, it, government in power. I mean, the whole idea of government is, is, is control and attaining and maintaining power. And to admit that you messed up um, is is difficult for, uh, especially people in the military, I think it's difficult for them to to go there unless they're really caught with their, you know, with their pants down, their fingers in the cookie jar, uh, and, it's, and it's so obvious that they have to fess up. And I think that would be an example of them hoping that they could get away with denying any sort of uh, involvement or culpability. But because of the massive die-off of sheep, uh, you mentioned 6,300. I've forgotten it was that many. Uh, because it was so obvious <laughs> that something you know, really catastrophic had happened to these animals, uh, they were shamed, basically, into admitting uh, their involvement. But the government, you know, if it can get away with just 
you know, some sort of plausible deniability that, that leaves them off the hook. Believe me, that that's their, <laughs> their preferred MO in terms of dealing with these types of, of scenarios. Uh, you know, and I, I just wish that we had more investigative journalists in this uh, country uh, who could really look at what's going on right now politically around the world and in our involvement in, in, in uh, other people's business, uh, shall we say. I, I think we need more people that are uh, willing to, you know, do the digging, put their, put their uh, you know, investigative chops to work. And, and, you know, where is the Woodward and Bernsteins uh, this day and age? We just don't have people that are willing to do that. And we have corporate control of the media uh, not allowing this work to be, uh, to be publicized. And, you know, we're, we're headed down a slippery slope when we, uh, we can't uh, hold our, our uh, politicians and our, in our uh, governmental structure accountable for some of the, you know, just horrendous decision-making that's been going on in this country. Well, not to get political here, but, you know, the more you see people like you talking or, you know, people listening to this show or, or the show that you also deal with, this, this worries the media, in my opinion, because as you said, there's six companies that own 90% of the media. But then more and more people are listening to alternative sources of news. And that's why you have, you know, congressmen and senators lobbying, lobbying to to start giving licenses to journalists. In other words, if you don't have this license, you cannot be a journalist. What do you think about that? And I know this is unrelated to this story, but it's interlinked. It's indirectly related. Yeah. And, and it's, oh, man, um, we could do just a whole show on on. <laughs> on this particular angle, uh, no question. Uh, you know, it's people have this. I don't know. We we've, we've descended into a place of complacency, and I think the the culture is dumbing us down and attempting to really pull the wool over our eyes and 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 keep us from really understanding. You know, the depth of certain issues. Uh, you know, you, you walk around out there, and everybody's got their eyes down. They're texting they're 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 tweeting you know there's so many distractions in the modern world and there's not enough emphasis on really getting yourself up to speed educated and and aware of very very important issues that are going on and i think you know the corp the corporations now uh have so much influence and and so much power uh you, you could almost call this a plutocracy or even you know verging on a fascist system that we're we're de devolving into and you know we've got to be able to uh trust um our leaders we've got to be able to trust uh you know corporations to do the right thing instead of just constantly focusing on on making uh you know the rich richer and keeping everybody else under 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 you know under control and uh it's just it's really uh i i don't see it getting better anytime soon let's put it that way <laughs> you know this is this is very unrelated but before we started the show i don't know why i went to youtube and you know they present popular videos and i don't know why this video from 1972 popped up it was the oscars from 1972 and bear with me this this you'll see why i'm, I'm referring to this but it was the oscars 1972 and they were presenting the oscar to marlon brando for the godfather and it was roger moore and this lady presenting all of a sudden Marlon Brando's not there. He sent uh, a Native American female on his behalf right. not to accept, you probably know the story, not to accept uh, the Oscar. And I, I, I listened to, to what she had to say, you know, the treatment that Native Americans have had in Hollywood and, and in society in general. And I agreed. And this is 42 years later. All of a sudden, you start looking at the comments on YouTube and the ignorance. One person said, she spoke so softly that I almost went to sleep. And the thought came to mind thinking, see, here in the Western world, in the quote-unquote civilized world, we're always in this hurry all the time, distracted. And that's why when you speak to a Native American elder or anybody, they speak softly, they speak slowly, because they don't have a hurry. They, com they commune with nature. Isn't this where we're going now if we continue on this, as you say, this slippery slope of distraction, this dumbing down of the world? Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's interesting that you should bring up uh, Brando's uh, refusal of the Oscar in '72. I, I I scratched my head trying to figure out why there's not a single mutilation case from the year of 1972, 
And so what I did instead was I, 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 along with David Perkins, we looked at what was going on in the culture to possibly give us a clue of why uh, mutilation cases weren't being reported in that year. They were reported in, seven, in, in 70, 71, 73, 4, all the way down the line uh, to uh, just you know recently here, uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the things that we mentioned in there is this uh, is this refusal of the Oscar. And, and also what, what do happened – Say again? No, I'm just saying, wow, this, you, you found a correlation there. Yeah, oh, I did. And wow. I also found a correlation between an immense flood that took out uh, an area right outside of the the reservation where this particular woman lived and and also some real nasty uh, weather uh, that, that occurred uh, right around that same time. I, Whenever I look at a mystery, I don't, I'm not, I don't have blinders on. If I'm going out and I'm investigating a UFO report or a cattle case – I'm looking for aberrant social behavior. I'm looking for unusual weather, uh, unusual like amounts of fires or roadkill or just just stuff that seems uh, um, out of the ordinary that may be surrounding it. And oftentimes you do find other indicators in the culture that something as weird is going on in and around these areas where these things are happening and being reported. And 72, we just could not figure out why uh, no cases were reported. And uh, there was only one die-off that uh, was highly suspect that happened up in Alaska to a bunch of caribou. And that was probably, again, a uh, a result of uh, a, a similar scenario as the Dugway Proving Grounds. There was this secret uh, chemical weapons and, uh, facility up there that may have been responsible for these animals' deaths. But, but why, if the debunkers and skeptics are correct, and these cases are all misidentified scavenger action, how come cases from just blast out from nowhere happen for X amount of time period, then stop. But all of a sudden uh, the ranchers are, uh, you know, they wake up one morning and, and they're not delusional. Uh, it, it just, there's too much evidence to support the high strangeness of this. And that, that, that there are perpetrators that are behind these, these things. And, and they have a, a workflow once they're finished uh, doing whatever they're doing, boom, they stop and cases aren't reported uh, after that. And if they are, it's it's, you know, it's pretty apparent to law enforcement that it's that's, you know, people just uh, seeing a dead cow and thinking it's mutilated. I've, I've had that happen a number of times. But the real cases, if they stop, then that's it. Uh, you know, and I don't think the the explanation that this is all media induced hysteria uh it works up to a certain point, but I don't think it, it's it's in you know that that idea is 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 I think very fallible. What about the fact that for thousands of years, many ancient civilizations used blood and livestock for their rituals and for religious and even dietary purposes? Is there a relation between these two? Oh, I've always I've always felt there was a direct connection with our ancient practice of animal sacrifice. I've always felt that, and you know I get kind of snickered at by some investigators out there for even bringing this up but i do feel that there is uh, some aspect of ritual going on here there is uh an aspect of of ritualized blood sacrifice let's put it that way and you know i i really have been looking into this and the history of 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 certain cultural practices involving uh, ritual and blood sacrifice. I mean, every day, millions of animals on this planet are sacrificed uh, in ritualistic uh, style, uh, whether it's Santeria, whether it's uh, Condomble, whether it's, you know, belief systems uh, in, in Africa, South America. Uh, there are a lot of people that sacrifice various animals uh, to whatever gods that they want to uh, honor or placate. And it makes sense to me that ancient man, if there were mutilations occurring, the ancient man might uh, pick up the practice of animal sacrifice so that he could present animals that weren't as valuable, that maybe were sick and old, or, or, or you know, he could, he could afford to lose those so that whatever this predator is uh, doesn't come down and take the good animals. Uh, and I've, I've always felt that there was a connection there, and I'm, I'm probably the only one really in the field that, that is willing to, to even talk about that. Uh, uh, David Perkins you know he's he kind of understands why I go there, but he he disagrees. He thinks uh, he he doesn't see the connection. Uh, you know, God forbid I should ever try to talk to Linda Howe uh, about this. Uh, she would she wouldn't even <laughs> talk to me about it if I brought it up. I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, I've mentioned it to other investigators, 
who have fallen by the wayside over the years. There's very few people willing to to do this work, by the way. I mean, people have committed suicide. They've disappeared off, you know, practically off the face of the earth. We don't know what happens to them. You know, the ex-law enforcement officers who got involved have told me, do not contact me about this ever again. I will not comment publicly on these on this whole subject. Uh, there's a, a major attrition rate, uh, <laughs> psychic. <laughs> you mean you mean in the ritualistic aspect of it? Uh, in 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 just in the field of, of mutilation investigation, yeah. I'm talking about researchers, and and the few that are left don't want to talk about ritual. Uh, it's it's just I think that that scares people. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, if if there's ritual acts going on, you know, I mean, the obvious, you know, knee jerk conclusion could be, well, when are they going to graduate from cows and go to, to humans? humans? Almost have a virtual match in terms of our hemoglobin. If you're a universal donor, uh, you can survive. Uh, there's real good chance you'll survive a transmission of cattle hemoglobin. We've been eating these animals so long. We've we've, you know, we literally are what we eat. Our blood is a 99.9 to nine places match with cattle hemoglobin way, way closer than uh, any other animals except maybe pigs because we eat them too. They're a match uh, 99.9 to seven places, I think, or five. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's just that whole idea of, uh, you know, the ritual uh, blood sacrifice may all of a sudden uh, you know, just the thought of these things happening to people uh, is pretty horrific. And I do go into the whole mutilation uh, aspect with humans as well in the book. And and it's the most difficult thing uh, anybody will be able to investigate. Uh, Don Ecker, you know, the longtime yeah, sure. UFO magazine, he made several attempts uh, in the 80s and early 90s to dig into cases as an ex-law uh, enforcement officer. Uh, there have been others who have dug into it. Uh, I've I've really tried hard. I know Gabe Valdez helped me uh, try to track down a New Mexico case that was very very horrific sounding. But I'll tell you, that's the the last thing that any law enforcement uh, agency is going to admit uh, that that happened. If you if they found a human in this condition, there was a case uh, down by you actually about five years ago that supposedly happened on the um, the Apache reservation down there. Uh -huh. Let's talk about let's talk about that case when we come back because we have to take a break. Okay. And so, also, there's another case, and most people who listen to this show are familiar with it. They may not have heard or listened to the interview I did with AJ Gavard years ago regarding uh, the human anger reservoir case. That's exactly, and many people think that that was a real mutilation. But I'll give you the answer when we come back. How can people buy uh, your book, all your books, and even listen to you on radio? Well, if, if you want an autographed copy, uh, OurStrangePlanet.com is my website, or you can go to StalkingTheHerd.com. Uh, I am the co-host of uh, The Paracast. Uh, we'll, you know, go to The, T-H-E, Paracast, P-A-R-A-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, we broadcast every Sunday night. Uh, uh, it's, we get good guests just like you do, Mel, and, uh, you know, we... Uh, we're trying to get the word out, and, and uh, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to speak with you today. And you, you know, I've I've heard nothing but great things about the show, and I'm glad you've you know I've, I've been invited on. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with uh, Christopher O'Brien, author of the book "Stalking the Herd: Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery." Much more, and we'll get deeper when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
Hey, listeners, Christopher O'Brien here, author of Stalking the Herd. You're listening to Veritas, one of the top shows examining the mysteries of our time. <laughs> 